Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders as we continue our flood of talks and panel discussions from the 2016 RipperCon, Jack the Ripper and True Crime Convention from Baltimore. And what you are about to hear is the panel on Jack the Ripper suspects with Martin Fido, Robert Anderson, and Michael Hawley that took place on the Saturday morning of the event. It's a pretty free and loose discussion that I hope you will enjoy. So here it is. You know, I, I think I, I'll, I'll start and, and just mention some of the aspects of like my, my research that ties nicely into what Mike had to say yesterday and perhaps amplifies it. Uh, back at the York conference, I gave a uh, talk on the composition of the ink of the diary. And one of the things that started to nag me in the course of doing the research for it was I started to think to myself, damn, this guy's neurosyphilitic. And uh, a careful reading of the transcript of the Maybrick trial will tell you basically that at the time of his death, he was taking virtually every Victorian-era medication that you'd give somebody in the terminal stages of tertiary syphilis. And it started to make me think, like, well, there's an explanation then for the creation of a diary that actually has nothing to do with Jack the Ripper. But it started to open Pandora's box, so to speak, and I said, well, what other suspects do we have that syphilis might also have played a role? And there's no question whatsoever that David Cohen was was a syphilitic. Yes, there is. Nathan Kaminsky, who was a syphilitic. Oh, sorry. Yes. yes sorry. I, 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 even I confused the, the, the names. Yes. But there's, there's syphilis there, damn it. Uh, and I figured, I started to think about, like, well, what about all these potions and creams that Dr. Tumbletee was peddling? And I started to go through the advertisements that uh, Dr. Tumblety would put in newspapers, and he would talk about, you know, salvation from mercury, or, you know, freedom from mercury. And it's very clear that if you gave a careful reading of his ads, he was talking about trading people in quack fashion for syphilis. And I hesitate to even use the phrase quack treatments, because the fact is, in the Victorian era, there were no effective treatments for syphilis, the things that they did give you were almost as bad as the disease itself. So when I then took a look at Dr. Tumblety's death certificate, one of the secondary cause of death is a blown aortic valve. And if you look at the case with modern day eyes, it's not going to throw off alarms because you think, well, you know, coronary disease is fairly prevalent here, but you have to remember back, you know, the 1890s, coronary disease wasn't as commonplace, and a blown aorta was basically doctor's lingo for, you know, uh, something derived from syphilis, because one of the places where, in the body, where the uh, spirochetes are fond of hiding is the brain and your aortic valve. So the minute I saw a blown aorta, I thought, oh my God, the guy died from syphilis. And it starts to explain a lot uh, in terms of uh, Tumblety's possible hatred of women, a possible desire for revenge, 
uh, the source of his wealth because Lord knows it wasn't just from, you know, peddling Indian herbs. It was from, you know, trying to help people with syphilis. That's where the money was. It was extraordinarily expensive to be treated for syphilis in the Victorian era. And Tumblety's fees would have been commensurate with that. So all of a sudden, a lot of the Tumblety story starts to make sense if you start looking at it through syphilitic lenses. And that's my two cents, and I'll shut up. So. And then, uh, especially, uh, we were talking last night about uh, this, and back in the early to mid-1800s, there were kind of four different kind of uh, medicines or, um, let's see, there was homeopathic medicines, there was allopathic medicines, which was the, the surgical community or the medical community, uh, community endorsed. Then there was Indian herb doctor or herbal medicines. And then there was the French medicines, uh, but it's more for the French diseases. And it really uh, focused in the early 1800s in Albany, New York, where you have these people that they would give their name as, with a French name and uh, so Tumblety, when he was in Rochester, there was a man named Lispinard, but his real name was Reynolds. But Lispinard was a French name. So having a French name, that means you, you know, the French uh, culture is a little more promiscuous in, you know, ideas uh, than Victorian. And so back then they thought that the, uh, uh, they would be better at the, the sexual diseases and that would fit into that category. And, and um, so... We always know Tumbley as a quack Indian herb doctor, but he always wrote MD at the end of his name, and he never was a medical doctor. I mean, he claimed he was. So it's true, though, that uh, the, the people in charge back then, the medical community, wanted quack doctors out of the picture. And it was because they were still doing, I think, bloodletting, using mercury as well. Right. So it wasn't too healthy a lot of times. So there were no courses in venereology or you know, syphilology in you know, medical schools. So a lot of the people that set up to treat patients for syphilis were not, in fact, actual doctors in a lot of cases. So I would just say with respect to you know, what you're saying about tumble tea and the whole issue, it's like extremely blurred once you start getting to venereal disease. Whether uh, there, there, there would be no need for him actually to have attended a medical school, and he was a smart man. That I mean, to, to make so much money doing it, and you look, read even the the, uh, the, the letters that he had with uh, Sir Henry Hall Kane, It was a very bright, he was a very bright man, and a lot of people would con thought that he was maybe a, a coward, uh, but he to travel so much. There was a lot of I mean, little. He was not, uh, I mean, he really had two lives, his public persona and his private one. But uh, so, yeah, I would, you know, that would be also help explain why right after the murders, even though he, he even when he died in 1903, he had so much money in the banks, but he started living on the fringes. And so that kind of would explain some of that as well. Morning. Am I supposed to talk about tumble tea or my research? Yeah, anything you this want. This is little to say about I. <laughs> I thought we were taking questions. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, well, we can do that. Well, uh, my research on the Ripper at the moment is 
non-existent. I'm very busy teaching other things, except that every term to students who are taking a course I call writing about controversial science are given the reports from uh, Nick Eastor, the uh, AFI Leeds University, and uh, Baxendale, and asked to say what they would say to a non-scientist was how these should be interpreted. So I'm thinking about the Ripper in that, to that extent once a term. If you looked at the saved file box on my computer, there's a great pileup of Ripperologists on it. Occasionally I look at it. But I did do some research for this conference. I reread my own book on the Ripper. I uh, was surprised by how well written and good it was and how little <laughs> error I'd made. <laughs> and uh, um, and uh, started rereading again Richard Whittington Egan's uh, new case book on the Ripper, which, despite its having uh, clearly some uh, very, very Stuart Evans influenced comments on my work, is very good indeed, uh, was interested to notice that I could pick up errors in that very quickly as well. Whereas I picked up one in Mike's paper yesterday, uh, that the CO was the commissioner's office and not the special branch. Uh, work now has become very, very precise. In Richard's and my day, we could be a bit more slapdash. On the question of tumble tea, well, let's go back to my historical memories and why Keith Skinner is so constantly impressive. Stuart came up and said, I've got a new name, I've got it on a letter I bought from Little Child. It's an unthought of American suspect, uh, a doctor who came across to England. Keith said, oh, would that be Tumblety? He'd pick that up and nobody had ever used it. Pick. Keith gets this stuff and uh, we don't know about it. At the same time, Stuart said, and I think I can put a name to the journalist who was supposedly created the letters. And Keith said, Bullen? <laughs> hidden in Keith's mind is stuff that he's found and uncovered and just put away. He's an extraordinary researcher. He's not desperately interested in the question of who was Jack the Ripper. He is desperately interested in can we find more definite information. And that's what he does. And really goes for it. But if nobody he's working with has a use for it, he won't write in, uh, himself. Any of his co-authored books, he's actually not written. He has double-checked the writing. He's said, there's ambiguity here. It's maddening to co-author a book with Keith. He wants you correcting and correcting and changing and changing all the time. And there are motives. Keith, nobody could misunderstand that. Nonetheless, the grammar would mean you could inter... Oh, God. All right, Keith, we'll rewrite it. Um, but, Wow. Finding out everything, absolutely the tops. Let's, we're talking about suspects, and last night uh, it was a nice conversation with Martin. We were talking about uh, going into this ripper world when you're focused on one suspect. You know, you're pigeonholed as one su for you know, and just one suspect. And for me, I don't care. I love that part, but. Uh, not everyone likes that, but it's also what happens is there, it gives you a personal bias. So I kind of try to say that I admit that I ha there is a bias there that um, that I have, uh, you know, think that he may very well have been Jack the Ripper. But as uh, what Martin was saying, if you anyone says uh, it's a hundred percent this person, 
there's something wrong with that picture. Mm. So, and, and so even when uh, I listen to uh, others talk about Druitt, I mean, I, I just try to take it in because the truth is different than what your belief is sometimes. So it's, uh, for this suspect thing, it's, it's a, a constant check yourself. Yeah. So, and then that's why I love the fact when uh, Martin came up and said, oh, did you know you're wrong on this? So it was like, oh, that's what I'm needing. Exactly what I need to, to continue on. So, and of course, usefully, it was not a central or essential point at all. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a sidebar. <laughs> yes, I think um, we're all compelled if we're going to publish. The publishers only want us to say, "I found Jack the Ripper." So you're not allowed to end with what I wanted to say. This is, I think, the most plausible suspect ever named. I would never write off Druid. We don't know what McNaughton's evidence was. The fact that McNaughton could be inaccurate about facts doesn't mean that he hadn't got some red-hot information which he never released, probably for personal reasons. Uh, as we know, the, the Melvilles, the Mayos, and the Druids were very close, and as his middle name shows, he's connected with the Melvilles. Um, so he, he could have personal reasons for being discreet. How do you account for Druid having been an accepted suspect when the only evidence against him was the time of his death? Weren't the police disturbed by there not being any further evidence to back up that claim? We don't, as I've just said, we don't know what... Uh, uh, remember that McNaughton said he'd got further evidence. He said, the evidence to prove this didn't come into my hands until some years after the investigation was over. Right. Uh, he also said, from, uh, oh, and he said uh, from private information, I believe that his family thought him to be the Ripper. And he has close enough ties with the Druitt family that he could have heard something there. Uh, on the other hand, not so close that he doesn't mistakenly think Druitt's a doctor like his father. Uh, and then he further says, the evidence which would prove this conjecture right, uh, if I'm right, now lies at the bottom of the Thames. We haven't the foggiest idea what he's talking about. We just don't know what it is he thought Druitt might have been carrying that would have proved he was Jack the Ripper, whether it was a knife or whatever. And we don't know what the evidence was that came into his hands a few years later. But Norton is the only person who names Druitt for us. And... So when we say the police, again, we don't actually know whether it isn't McNaughton on his own who thought that. But it seems unlikely since others picked up the idea of a doctor who drowned in the Thames or a Russian doctor who drowned in the Thames. So they seem to have got ideas which they've jumbled together from McNaughton's proposals. Right, and at the risk of sounding like a one-trick pony, which I am, uh, one of the things that... Uh, interested me was, you know, whether or not Druitt's mother, you know, was in insane asylum, was she, you know, put away for neurosyphilis, and did Druitt suffer from congenital syphilis, which might explain the madness in the family, because obviously he says, you know, I became increasingly afraid that I'm becoming like mother, and there's not a lot of information about what it was in fact was wrong with his mother. And the Victorians were incredibly discreet about the subject of syphilis. It's never, re it's never referred to 
as syphilis. You will never find it on anyone's death certificate. And in fact, even the paupers in the infirmaries in Whitechapel generally were accorded the courtesy of not having it listed as the cause of death. Because technically it never was. It was some, you know, it would be a secondary consideration. But it was regarded as an affront to the family and it wasn't necessary. And since we had a different attitude towards sexuality back then, where men had license, it was understood that men would visit prostitutes. It was understood that men might bring syphilis back home. It was not discussed. But obviously, it cost a heavy toll and destroyed a lot of people. And I was just curious as to whether or not that's why Druitt's mother was, uh, you know, put away for, for insanity, and that's why he himself feared, you know, that he was going crazy. Obviously, people have been going nuts for thousands of years without neurosyphilis, but I just, it just, it was a little bit of a red flag because so little was said about her condition. And also, uh, at Nottingham, it, it, I believe it's David Anderson, I believe is the gentleman, who just put out an e-book on Druitt, which contains a lot of new information about Druitt, and what he believes was Druitt's movements the day before he died, that Druitt might in fact not have been going to a cricket game, but going to see some uh, doctor friends of his uh, that, that were alienists. And, he, you know, I, I don't want to cut short like a 130-page book or an entire hour-long talk, but there does seem to be more to Druitt than you might just casually think. He, he definitely should stay on the suspect list. Yeah. I just want to raise something relating to what was said yesterday about uh, Victorian ideas on lunacy. Uh, yes, it is said of both Kosminski and I've forgotten the second person now, that's important, but that their madness was caused by masturbation or solitary vices. Uh, when we were making one of the television films, uh, we were working in the old public records office, um, Don Rumbelow is quoting this uh, as a result of consequent so constant solitary vices. And I hear one technician saying, to him, the solitary vices, what the hell are they? And I said to him, wanking as I went by. <laughs> the Victorians did believe that masturbation could result in insanity. Paul Begg picked this up at a conference in Italy, saying this must indicate that Kosminski uh, is definitely a major... Oh, yes, it's... Um, Anderson says of his suspect uh, that he uh, had uh, fallen to his depravity because of his unmentionable vices. Uh, McNaughton also makes a small reference, and this is attached to Kosminski. And Paul Begg said, this shows clearly that this is the same man. They're all concerned about his masturbation. An Italian paper then described Paul as an expert on masturbation. Yeah. <laughs> well. But what I wanted to say was, the Victorians believed it was a cause. Pretty certainly, all they're doing is reversing effect and cause. One of the common effects of certain types of derangement is... Um, uncontrolled masturbation uh, publicly and with a complete disregard for who's around. It's said that Marilyn Monroe did this at the time when she uh, had a major breakdown, was briefly 
uh, in a mental hospital. Uh, it was certainly true of uh, a South London uh, multiple murderer who was seen masturbating in the dock at his trial, and it is recognized that uh, thoroughly respectable people will suddenly become apparently totally disreputable when they have these total breakdowns. The Victorians thought it was a cause. They were actually looking at an effect. Right, and also when you uh, hear the term sexual insanity, that also is uh, in the medical literature of the era is also a, uh, another euphemism for uh, neurosyphilis. General paralysis of the insane GPI, sexual insanity. So when I saw uh, comments by police that the man was definitely sexually insane, they may not actually have been talking about him having been driven to madness by wanking. But, yeah. uh, I find it interesting that you keep talking as if there was no solution, that there was no medical solution to syphilis at that period. It was well known in the United States that Kalama yes. would easily treat this off, yep. depending on which part. Again, Kalama could easily treat the disease, and actually in men, it's very easy to, to notice it. One, you lose your hair, and your teeth would loosen, and that was the point at which you stopped counting on. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, no, ca right, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, for, yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't hear, yes. Oh, yeah, no, no, they're... Yes. Well, in the Victorian, the heavy metals address the symptoms, correct? It is not a cure. Even uh, salversan, which was invented after the Victorian era, did not actually cure. It's, it just... It, it, right, exactly. It, it drove, it got the spirochete level, you know, in your blood down to, you know, almost zero. It, it's actually very analogous to uh, the AIDS cocktail, where the AIDS cocktail is driving, you know, your viral load in your blood down to nothing, but we don't know longer term, you know, what the ultimate outcome is going to be for people that are on that medication for 20, 30 years. People on salversan weren't cured of syphilis. Basically, the symptoms were depressed. However, the spirochetes would still go to town on your brain. Well, so, no, 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 no. The mercury cure had been used since the 17th century. Yes, yes, but mer but the, but cure is a is a bad is a is a difficult term. You're 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 suppressing symptoms. You're not curing the disease. Well, I mean, Sir William Davenport. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, sir, no, no, that's what. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the mercury actually eliminated, a lot of people had the mercury cure and never showed any further deterioration. Uh, Sir William Davenant lost his nose, he took so much mercury. It can still affect you. I mean, I have a friend who cannot eat tuna because it starts to uh, begin creating sores in the nose uh, because there's so much mercury in it. Disraeli took the mercury cure. Uh, while he was on his continental travels. In fact, he wrote to a friend, uh, Mercury, alas, has succeeded Venus. And clearly, his brain held up superbly right to the end. So, Right. Well, about a third of the people that develop uh, you know, tertiary uh, syphilis, well, for, well, not everybody that comes contracts syphilis develops tertiary syphilis. Mm. Not everybody that develops tertiary syphilis you know, is killed by it, nor goes insane. You know, but uh, it's just not... You know, uh, 
These treatments were palliative and uh, not without their own horrific uh, side effects. It, you know, mercury is not something you consume in you know industrial doses with, without its own problems. Do your researchers indicate how much time had to elapse between infection and psychosis? It varies from. Uh, individual to individual. Many people, many, many people, the worst thing that happens is they develop the initial, you know, chankers of syphilis and then they disappear and nothing further happens to them. And then, you know, other people later in life start, you know, all sorts of dodgy behavior. I mean, you know, like for in World War II, uh, you know, the uh, U.S. government was terrified of the thought of having a bunch of neurosyphilitic army bomber pilots. And, you know, given the in general infection rates at the time, there, you know, I, ca I can see their, uh, you know, I can see cause for their concern. I think it's very hard to get hard numbers, but I think, Kat, what was the percentage of uh, the German uh, officer corps going into World War I, which is obviously not World War II, but uh, what, wasn't it something like 35% of their officer corps was syphilitic? Yeah, right. So, well, the Germans were always good about keeping records, and they did, you know, you know. And by the time of World War One, a reliable test for syphilis had developed, and thirty-five percent of their officer corps had it. And I would argue that that's the officer corps, which was probably, you know, the the enlisted infection rates must have been off the charts. So, but that's got naught to do with Jack the Ripper. Well, I tried to, we, we have uh, some uh, numbers that we, uh, the, the Whitechapel Infirmary, uh, you know, records are preserved. And I went through them for the years like 1887 through 89, courtesy of a database that Chris Phillips, may you rest in peace, and now I've managed to drag him into yet a, uh, uh, not Chris Phillips, Chris Scott, yeah. sorry, Chris Scott. So now Chris Scott has now made an appearance at yet another Ripper conference, uh, which just shows you you can never quit the field no matter what. Uh, but uh, he compiled a database uh, of uh, the infirmaries, and I, and I went through and I was trying to read uh, the, the physician's code, so to speak. I mean, because they never wrote syphilis, so you had to take a look and start to think about, like, what were they really saying and sort of trying to put it into definite, possible, you know, improbable. And it looked like something in the order of 25 to 30% of the adult population in Whitechapel in 1888 would have had uh, exposure, would, would have had syphilis which uh, sounds, in today's mind, it's flabbergasting, but uh, I think it was, a fairly, it, was a, it was a fairly commonplace disease back then. I actually think it led to issues like women's suffrage. Uh, I, I think that uh, the real push for women's rights where women were tired of their husbands bringing back infection into the marital home. I don't know Chris Scott's database, but I can say that the 
Workhouse Infirmary records definitely recorded Nathan Kaminsky as being treated for syphilis. Yes, it, it, it was uncommon for the designation to be made, but yes, occasionally it was. I think if you, got, you had an unsympathetic doctor that day, you got a more accurate diagnosis. But in general, they used euphemisms. Well, that's a subject of an entire talk, uh, which, which, you know, which I gave, which is all of the euphemisms that they used. You know, like, uh, there's certain kinds of pneumonia, which would be indicative of, you know, syphilis. There's certain, it, it, it's convoluted. Uh, actually, the good news is, if you want, the, the, that particular talk and all the documentation is what was recorded for Rippercast. So if you go to the listing for Rippercasts, you'll find the talk was called Opening Pandora's Box, uh, Syphilis in Whitechapel, 1888. The entire talk is up there and all of my slides. So rather than hijack this by going through <laughs> how I piecemealed it all out, you can actually see our methodology there. So I would, I would, I would send you there. Any other questions, comments? Anything to postpone my having to talk about the Long Island serial killer? <laughs> For the love of God. <laughs> um, a question. Not sentence related, just. just it's all right. <laughs> it's okay. We'll allow it. In, in all the documentaries and specials and radio television shows you've been on, have you ever been edited in such a way post production? completely spin what you were saying? Yes. When the Maybrick Diary emerged, uh, I was interviewed about it, and how had I first heard about it? And I said, Keith Skinner told me, he said, I must get down and see this. Uh, it is going, this is something which is going to completely change uh, Ripper studies. They cut out the whole Keith Skinner set. And they had me saying, this is something which will completely change Ripper studies, which was not something I was committed to at all. Well, in the uh, documentary, The Definitive Story, uh, I'm there, and the words are coming out of my mouth that, uh, that uh, the uh, Marie Kelly murder was Jack's masterpiece. And that, you know, I got a lot of Black over that comment, but the it's 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 you're not seeing what I said before and after, and you know I certainly wasn't giving it you know, I I was being quite derogatory towards the Ripper and to the murder. And I was just we were the question been is like why do you think the crimes ended, and I was just getting to the point of like where, you know to the twisted mind of Jack the Ripper having just created his masterpiece, this, you know, this horrible tableau that uh, he may have decided he said everything that he needed to say and, you know, the moving hand having writ, he exited stage right. Uh, but they just got in the masterpiece comment, so it, it stuck. Mr. Potter, when Cohen was first committed, 
Was he not committed under the name Aaron Davis Cohen? He was at the magistrate's court under the name Aaron Davis Cohen, so yes. And then in the evening, when he was taken to the workhouse infirmary, he was recorded as David Cohen. Well, that's my question. If they could be specific about at least his first name and possibly his middle name in the magistrate's court, how did it devolve to a John Doe classification at the workhouse? Well, all we can say about this is that it's obvious they were uncertain about his name. Since the, you've got this Aaron Davis in the morning, you've got the David in the evening, where, where did they get it from? Where did they get this man's name in any way or shape? He's got no known relatives that are recorded, no known friends who are described, no dis puts in. It's not like, uh, you know, Aaron Kosminski, where we've got the fact of a brother, we have got um, uh, Jacob. Isaacs, is he called, or Isaac Jacobs, uh, the guy who has seen him picking up food off the streets and knows all about him. This is a man on whom the only records we've got are the records of his committal by the magistrates, his appearance in the workhouse infirmary, and his asylum records. And he's said to be incoherent, to speak almost nothing but German. There's nobody... How do they know a damn thing about him? Uh, they, the, the fact that they give two... Uh, four names in the morning and a completely different single forename in the evening, one just puts together and says, well, clearly they weren't clear about his name. But I don't know. I mean, he might actually have been called Cohen. And it could be that somebody who was present at the arrest said, oh, yes, I knew him before he went completely round the twist, and his name is... Um, he could have said Aaron Davis Cohen. The Aaron could have been forgotten. The Davis misremembered as David. Your guess is as good as mine. But Oh, by the way, I don't believe any longer that they ascribed the name Cohen to him necessarily. I'm no longer uh, arguing strongly for Nathan Kaminsky. This is one of the things where I come in with a first discovery which made a huge impact on me at the time. Uh, I am looking for somebody who could be Anderson's uh, suspect. And remember, Anderson always takes precedence over McNaughton for me. This is where um, the big distortion of my work that Melvin Harris introduced was the claim that I found Kosminski, found he wasn't, uh, was obviously not the Ripper, and went looking for someone else. That is totally untrue. I went looking for Kosminski, couldn't find him, and since there was no Kosminski in any asylum down to 1890, thought, well, uh, there is no Kosminski who's gone to the asylum. He doesn't exist. What am I looking for? I'm, forget McNaughton now, because I know he's got wrong details. Let's come simply back to Anderson, and I'm looking for a madman. And here I come back to my original finding. Oh, wow, who's gone through the workhouse infirmary to the uh, asylum? And Nathan Kaminsky, who's, Polish Jew who's Jewish without the Polish attached, uh, who is um, uh, a leather worker, so he could have a leather apron. Uh, he fits absolutely beautifully. And he's had syphilis at the right time to be angry and attack Ada Wilson. He f f sticks in my mind, especially as Richard Whittington Egan has liked the idea, given his location. But I find nothing more out about him. Then when I find there's no Kosminski, but Anderson has quite definitely said this man was sent to an asylum where, uh, before he was identified, I go back to the asylum records and realize that the one person, because I've all, all, always said, there's got to be a reason why the murder stopped. 
He either died or was caught. We don't know at that time, because we haven't got the examples which we have now, of serial killers who realize they're on the verge of being caught and stop. Uh, we've got two of those, at least in America, the Green River Killer and the, uh, uh, what's it called, Bind, Torture, Kill... Uh, yeah, the BTK, yeah. Uh, both of them knew they were about to be caught and stopped. So that's a possibility we didn't know of in 1988. Stopping here to move somewhere, in which case the murders would take up again somewhere else, or die, or be incarcerated for another reason. And here is the one man I've found who is incarcerated for another reason, but whose madness and violence suggest that he certainly could be the Ripper, and he's from the right place. He's exactly the same age as the Nathan Kaminsky I've been looking for. So he's gone in under the name David Cohen. And I think he's Nathan Kaminsky, because Nathan Kaminsky has been in my mind ever since I found him. Now I have to look back and say, as Michael would say, wait a minute, Nathan Kaminsky happens to be the first interesting thing I found. I haven't got any proof against him at all. I've simply got the coincidence that he's the right race, uh, he's got an appropriate uh, illness, one much loved by Robert, as an example of clearly the Ripper. Uh, I don't think I'd use the word love. <laughs> at, an at an appropriate time. I've got nothing against him. Against David Cohen, I've got the much better evidence that, wow, he is incarcerated at a point which would stop the murders, and wow, he is the sort of uh, person who could indeed be very violent. And then once the um, Swanson marginalia turn up, wow, Swanson says he died shortly afterwards. This is the only young Jewish patient who died shortly afterwards in the period. So I've got a lot going for David Cohen. I've got nothing going for uh, Nathan Kaminsky. So all I can say about David Cohen is forget my saying this had to be a John Doe name um, because they didn't know in the Kaminsky is confirmed as Kosminski later. That, that's, that's wild guesswork. I'm down to saying he's David Cohen. I don't know what his name really was. I do know the police weren't 100% certain of it because he's Aaron Davis in the morning, David in the evening. But where they got that name from, heaven alone knows. Then the question is, how does he become confused with Kosminski? I no longer think the name is attached to him. Um, because he actually was Kaminsky. I don't know whether he was or could have been Kaminsky or not. There's, there's no real evidence to prove it. Yes? Just um, following on from an excellent talk um, in Salisbury, Robert, um, we were talking Thank you. a bit this morning at breakfast about an urinal disease, and it was endemic. Yes, breakfast with me does involve discussions of, <laughs> of shankers and... Yes. Yanking. Yes, well. You know, likely the Whitechapel murder might well have been symplitic no matter what walk of society he was. And going on to a list of talking about candidates, I mean, one who seems to have fallen by the wayside is, is Jacob Lowy, the butcher. He was symplitic, was he not? I mean, Yes, uh, Cutbush, very good chance. Uh, there's, uh, yes, I mean, I, 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 one of the problems with uh, using syphilis, syphilis as any kind of uh, lens to view the case is that surprisingly few neurosyphilitics actually get violent. Uh, deranged, yes. Violent, no. 
So we have to be very careful, uh, you know, about using it. You have to, we have to treat it with extremely gingerly uh, because I was, I was trying to look through records for like, I mean, uh, neurosyphilitics would masturbate compulsively in asylums, but actually go and butcher women systematically, you know, no. So we, we've got to be, you know, you have to be cautious with respect to how we use it. It's a, it's a, it's a spice that one only wants to sprinkle a little bit on your, your ripper dish. I mean, we know that um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I got into this in the talk. I think that it's virtually impossible for any uh, Victorian-era sex worker not to have contracted the disease. Interestingly, older women who had gone into the tertiary non-contagious uh, phase of the disease and were known as the king's women uh, were, were desirable in some people's eyes because you couldn't catch it from them. So any notion that the ripper slaughtered these particular women because one of them gave him syphilis, or, which, is, which, is a, which is a long-standing theory, that you have to toss because it's highly unlikely that any of them were contagious. Perhaps Mary Kelly but uh, the others, older uh, victims, almost certainly were not contagious. So the Ripper may have sought revenge on women for what they did to him, but not these specific women, if that's I, of any help. I just want to pick up, slightly querying that, um, famous early Victorian case, I've forgotten the name of the man now, but it was known as the Taglioni case because he wore a cape or something, which was rather like something the ballet dancer Mary Taglioni had worn. He contracted syphilis from association with prostitutes and uh, when arrested uh, agreed that the reason he had gone back into the um, uh, oh gosh, name of the area, oh goodness, the terrible slum area, the rookery, the St. Giles rookery, uh, and killed one of the first prostitutes he came across was because he was outraged that he had been diseased by ladies of the profession. It was not necessarily somebody he knew. But that's one case which doesn't uh, undermine what Robert said. No, no, no. Actually, I think it amplifies it. And I also think with respect to tumble tea, uh, I think that you know the notion that homosexuals don't kill women uh, might not be applicable to Dr. Tumblety if in fact he's seeking revenge over what his wife, who according to some sources was a prostitute, had done to him. Now, well, the, and, and I'm still under the uh, belief that uh, that was just a story to kind of okay. uh, masquerade, but one of the things with, here's January 1888, and Tumblety tells this reporter that he's in constant fear of sudden death because of uh, heart disease and liver disease. In that same year, he's, he, he's, in, he's in constant dread of sudden death. And then that same month, right next to him, these anatomical venuses got ripped apart. And then, uh, so, and, uh, 
and if his mind was being affected, I mean, right. if there was this trigger switch, I mean, it right after that, he really does start going on the fringes of society, even though he had so much money. Right. And, and, and if I might, there's a parallel with Maybrick, the real-life James Maybrick, where, where he makes remarks to a friend that, you know, he'd been told that if ever he were to stop taking arsenic, he would, you know, suffer a horrible death. And arsenic, along with bismuth and antimony and mercury, are one of the heavy metals which serve to suppress the symptoms of syphilis. Not a cure, as we've discussed, but would have been a palliative. So there's probably, there's, there's, uh, there's probably a ripper syphilis link there that we don't quite understand yet. Right. And one more thing with the, the Tumbley thing. Remember the articles or his, in the letters that Tumbley wrote to uh, Sir Henry Hall Kane, his boyfriend, and also his, his, his other boyfriends, that uh, the ruination of the world was because of women. And because they were decoys, and because they would uh, decoy young men who are clearly intended for older males. So, right, right. so these prostitutes are, you know, impressing upon these young men. So, right. there was a reason why he hated women, right there. <laughs> so and Hole Kane was a lover of Bram Stoker, and Bram Stoker died uh, from complications of syphilis, and in fact. Many people believe that Dracula is, in fact, one large metaphor for, you know, foreigners injecting, like, a dread disease into British society. And I think the BBC did, a, a couple of years ago, did a remake of Dracula where they make the syphilis theme really front and center. And, in fact, the reason why people are seeking out Dracula was that he offered a cure for their, syphil their syphilitic condition. But, so I'm very surprised to hear that, because Bram Stoker, I thought, made an extremely happy woman, a marriage, to a young woman whom Oscar Wilde had hoped to marry. Yes. Uh, and there's issues, there's, there's some question as to whether, uh, let's put it this way, I didn't, get, I didn't have time to get into it, but there's a book on syphilis called The Pox, it's got a chapter on famous syphilitics, mm -hmm. and Wilde is one of those chapters, as is Beethoven and some others. Oh, these you know, are hugely questioned, both of Oh, I, 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 I absolutely understand, I mean, it's just like, I've got enough problems with Maybrick. <laughs> 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 My plate is full. I can't, you know, uh, questions about, uh, you know, what uh, someone may have given to a woman that Oscar Wilde wanted to marry is just completely, you know, not that, uh, not, you know. Do you know as far as Falcon, um, uh, yep. I mean, obviously, could you have it? That's right, you've got the name. I wouldn't have thought so for one minute. Because then if, if you know. I, I, I don't imagine for one minute that Oscar Wilde slept with her. Wilde's letters indicate that he was already interested in young boys. He uses the term psychological as a cover for this with friends when he says, I've met a young choir boy now of great psychological interest. At the same time, he wants to marry. Uh, and uh, the general view is that he didn't actually become a seriously active practicing homosexual until uh, well into his married life. 
But no, I, I, I don't think there's any question, any likelihood of women in the Oscar Wilde Bram Stoker circle uh, having syphilis unless their husbands had brought it home to them. Well, that would be the, well, that would act, that would be the mechanism of transmission. So, I think on that happy so note, we should probably. I'm sorry. What was that? Right, the, right. The, the notion would be Tumulty gave it to Kane, who gave it to Stoker. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't well, there. Now, Tumulty is uh, one of the things that's interesting, even though it's uh, the most documented with Hall Kane, uh, it, there were other young men in Tumulty's life that he favored even more than Hall Kane. Even in his uh, uh, will was another young man. Um, I forget his name. What's that? That apparently favored them over him over Hall Kane, and so I mean he was he always had had somebody uh, not always but he had a traveling partner. But then there's a re, you know record reports of him waiting right into a at a uh, like a bar, and then there'd be a young boy over here, and so he'd tumble. He would sit here, he sat next to him, put a cigar next to him. Sorry, Brian. Put a cigar next to the boy. <laughs> the boy grabbed that cigar, and they both walked out. And so, so really interesting. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. I think we should probably wrap up here because uh, somebody's got to babble about the Long Island serial killer. And when I find them, I'll put them on stage. So thank you. Thank you. And that was the Jack the Ripper Suspect panel discussion from RipperCon 2016 in Baltimore with Martin Fido, Robert Anderson, and Michael Hawley. The usual thanks are going out again to everyone who are making these talks and panels available to us, and especially Robert Anderson, who did an admirable job as our recording technician. We are a podcast hosted and sponsored by the website casebook.org, where you will find over 70 roundtable discussions and conference talks on Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. If you'd like to contact us via Facebook or Twitter, we are on that too, if you just search for RipperCast. There will be another release from Baltimore coming next week as we have many more to go, and I'd like to thank you all for listening, so stay tuned.